Jesus was a master storyteller. Through the vehicle of his parables, he conveyed timeless truths about God with incredible efficiency. However, for us to get the most out of these stories, it is important for us to understand the Middle Eastern culture of the storyteller and the original audience. I believe that doing so will recalibrate our personal attitudes and deepen our understanding of the messages written between the lines of these stories. Let's pray. Kind Father, I request the ministry of your Spirit. Please heal our brokenness, cure our arrogant self-righteousness, give us ears to hear and hearts that openly receive your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's examine the context of our study this morning, reading from Luke chapter 15. Verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. This story is made up of three stories. In each story, something or someone is lost. Story number one, a sheep is lost. Searching for one out of a hundred underscores the value that the shepherd places on each one. Jesus says pretty plainly, sinners who recognize their need of a savior and repent bring greater joy in heaven than those who look good keeping the rules. Story number two, a coin is lost. The diligent house cleaning of the woman results in her finding a significant part of her wealth as well as something that identifies her as a woman who is loved and valued. Both story number one and number two end with a community celebration without apology. Jesus likens the celebration to the spontaneous reactions in heaven when we acknowledge our need and acceptance of rescue. So the lessons from these two stories, lost people matter to God, God has great joy restoring the lost, and when we live in the kingdom of heaven, we share that perspective. Today, I would like to focus my attention on the third story. It is unfortunate that we have come to know this as the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal does not mean wayward. It means recklessly spendthrift. It means to spend until you've got nothing left. It is true that the younger son spent all that he had. It is also true that the father lavished his love on both of his sons. The story clearly begins with a man who had two sons. We would perhaps see the story more clearly if we titled it, Two Lost Sons. Going back to the opening verses of the chapter reminds us of the context 
of what is told, starting in verse 11. Jesus is speaking to a mixed group, the common people labeled sinners and the religious elders who see themselves as righteous. From the context, we know that while all are listening, the stories are told as a response to the privileged and entitled attitude of the scribes and Pharisees. This is the target audience. Jesus' message, however, is timeless. Today, he is speaking most pointedly to church-going people like us. We mirror the scribes and Pharisees when we look down on others with either condescension or contempt. This attitude is a natural consequence of equating righteousness with keeping rules. There is a direct correlation between Jesus' audience and the sons. The younger son represents the sinners. The elder son represents the religious elders. This story is told in two acts, and act one has three scenes. So act one, scene one, Luke 15, verse 11. To illustrate the point further, the point being that God has great joy restoring the lost, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth among his sons. The younger son asks for his inheritance. Clearly, there is a broken relationship with the father. It is true that the younger son has an inheritance. By Jewish law, his portion would be one-third of the estate, two-thirds going to his elder brother, but none of this would happen until the father died. While it is legally his, he will not take disposition until that death. To ask for it now signifies deep disrespect. Basically, he's saying, I want your things, I don't want you, or at least not you hovering over me. Give me what is mine, I want out of here. What would be most obvious to a Middle Eastern audience is the lack of any effort by the elder brother to mediate peace in the family. That would have been his role. The audience already suspects that there is more than one broken relationship in this household. Apparently, the elder brother is willing to suffer financial loss to be rid of the younger brother and his rebellious attitude. This younger brother is such a bother. The father's response, however, is even more shocking than the son's impudent request. The typical patriarchal Middle Eastern father would likely have disowned him on the spot and would have driven him out of the house with such a request. Incredibly, the father divided his property between them. The word for property is bios, meaning life. He divided his life between his sons. Now, much of the family wealth would have been in property. This would have meant liquidating it in a buyer's market as the younger son was anxious to get his money and leave home. It meant losing part of the family identity and a significant part of the father's standing in the community. The father willingly makes this sacrifice, tears his life apart, to meet the demand of the younger son. 
This was unheard of. The father endures both the loss of honor and the pain of rejected love. Instead of retaliating in anger or withdrawing from the broken relationship, this father maintains his affection for his son and bears the agony. Act 1, scene 2, jump to verse 13. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. So he takes the cash and heads down the road. In a far country, he wastes his money by making poor choices. It would be typical for a Middle Easterner to use his money to ingratiate himself into a new community with lavish gifts. Thanks to the slander of the elder brother, we have often pictured him in drunken debauchery, but it need not have been the only means by which he recklessly wasted his money. You might see him trying to buy his way into belonging in a new community. There's a crisis, a famine. He's suddenly penniless. So he persuades a farmer to hire him. Get the picture here. The farmer wasn't looking for help. He just made sure the farmer thought it was a good idea so he'd have a place to land. However, feeding pigs is forbidden by Jewish law. And it may have been in an effort to be rid of him that his boss assigned him this responsibility. The younger son was so low, he took it anyway. Sitting at the pigsty, he finally hits bottom. He admits he was wrong to chafe and rebel under his father's authority. He believes that he's forfeited his right to be a son. Jesus, in telling the story, pays the human race a great compliment in verse 17. The phrase, when he had come to his senses, or when he came to himself, conveys the vital reality that so long as we are headed away from God, we are not truly ourselves. Once we turn our hearts toward home, we start to find our true identity. The younger son's plan is to make a very specific request. He has an angle. He wants his father to, quote, make me one of your hired men. Now you have to understand, this is a technical difference. Servants worked on the estate and lived there. Hired men were various kinds of tradesmen and craftsmen who lived in local villages and earned a wage. The son's plan is to work out his own salvation. Since he has disgraced his family and the community, he is now dead to them. Not only would an apology be indicated, but he also needs to make restitution for the inheritance that he's wasted. He's got a plan to work off the debt. He's going to become apprentice to a tradesman, learn a trade, make some money, and begin to replace at least some of what he lost. His restoration into the good graces of family and society will be by his own doing, by the sweat of his brow. It would not be particularly dependent on anyone else to bail him out of the mess that he's created. He would say that he, we would say that he plans to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. So he rehearses his speech in the pigsty 
and he heads down the road for home. Now you need to know another Middle Eastern custom. A member of a town who loses family assets to foreigners and then tries to return home is subject to physical and verbal hazing and humiliation by the boys of the town upon his return. He's got to run the gauntlet. He has perhaps forgotten this detail, but his father hasn't. Act 1, Scene 3, Verse 20. So he returned home to his father. As soon as the son is within sight of the father, the father abandons all propriety and runs to meet him. Now children, women, and perhaps young men might run, but a pillar of the community like this man would not embarrass himself by picking up his robes to bare his legs so he could run like some small boy. The father interrupts the son's prepared speech and contradicts his request by ordering the best robe, his own robe, to make an emphatic statement to his son and to the onlooking servants and townspeople. The father is speaking to these three audiences. To the son, he is saying, I'm not going to wait for you to grovel or pay off your debts so that you can earn your way back into the family. I'm simply going to take you back, starting right now. I will cover your nakedness, poverty, and rags with the authority and honor that come with my robe, my ring, and the sandals that only a son would wear. To the townspeople, he is saying that there will be no gauntlet of shame. His wayward son has been restored to a place of belonging and honor. To the servants, he commands the preparation of a feast of joy and thanksgiving. This was such a rare and special occasion that not only would there be meat, it would be the most expensive meat, the fattened calf that would be required. As you read verse 24, I think it would be closer to reality to translate that verse leaving out the word again, in which case it would read like this, For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The younger son was not in a healthy relationship with his father before he left home. He is just now beginning to realize and accept the depth of his father's love. This is breathing the gift of life into him for the very first time. We see the recurring theme of celebration that is found in the stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and the party begins. The feast provided represents the love of the Father. All are invited to celebrate. The father is saying, let's celebrate the restoration of the younger son to life, family, and community. He's celebrating who the son will become now that he has entered into a loving relationship, a relationship that's just been ignited. The younger son knew that in his father ha father's house there was abundant food and to spare, but now he knows there is abundant grace and to spare. There is no evil that the Father's love cannot pardon, 
and cover, and there is no sin that is a match for his grace. I think I skipped one there. Okay. God's grace is reckless. Jesus shows the Father pouncing on his Son in love before he has a chance to clean up, before he has given any evidence of a change of heart, even before he can recite his repentance speech. Nothing, not even our deepest sorrow over sin, is required to obtain the favor of God. The Father's love and acceptance are absolutely free. God, in his love, planned for our restoration before this world began. While we were still sinners, he activated that plan. He does not wait for us to make the first move. Not everyone thinks that it is a good idea to describe the freeness of God's grace in this way. After all, where is the evidence of cost? We must read on. The story does not end with the close of Act One. If Act One revolves around the disgrace and lostness of the younger son and the reckless grace of the father, Act Two addresses the disgraceful behavior of the elder son and the costliness of the father's love. Act Two starts in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. So he's probably been out supervising the field workers. You shouldn't picture him actually doing the manual labor. He hears the sound of music and dancing as he returns home. He inquires of the servants or perhaps the boys in the town, what's going on? They would know. Learning that his brother has returned and is the reason for the celebra celebration, he is furious. His anger is evident in his words, in his body language, and in his decision not to participate in hosting this family celebration. At the very least, he should come in and greet the honored guests. Better yet, he should have taken the role of head server, demonstrating family hospitality. It is disgraceful for him to refuse to enter, to remain outside. He refuses to participate in the biggest feast and public event his father has ever initiated. He is publicly casting a vote of no confidence in his father's generous love and his public generosity. Jesus is offending religious people in his day and ours with this story. He wants to demonstrate the blindness of moral insiders and demonstrate how much God loves all people. Both the irreligious and the religious are spiritually lost on dead-end paths. Whichever group you find yourself in, we are lost by failing to recognize our need and by failing to realize how necessary 
God's recklessly amazing loving grace is for our ultimate healing. Jesus is not on the side of irreligious or religious people. He does, however, single out religious moralism as a particularly deadly spiritual condition. Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. Our church pretty much does the opposite. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal tend to avoid church. So here is a sobering thought. If our churches aren't full of younger brothers, perhaps they are more full of elder brothers than we'd like to think. The father leaves the party, and for the father to leave the party and come out to speak to the elder son is as disgraceful and embarrassing as when he had earlier that day picked up his robes to run out and greet the younger son. For the second time in the space of a few hours, the father has demonstrated that his love is stronger than traditions or customs. The father demonstrates that embarrassment is not too great an obstacle to be overcome to do what is right, to do what is loving. In his self-righteous anger, the elder son rudely addresses his father as if he were a slave. This is no time for manners. This is how he really feels. The son exposes his true self. He is the one functioning on the level of a slave instead of the level of a son. He follows rules to keep the peace and maintain his inheritance. He has chosen not to respond to the father in love. In that culture, a father would have surprised no one if he had disowned the elder son on the spot. Instead, he responds again with amazing tenderness. My son, despite how you've insulted me publicly, I still want you in the feast. I am not going to disown your brother, and I don't want to disown you either. Please, swallow your pride and come into the feast. The choice is yours. Will you or will you not experience the love that this feast represents? It is an unexpectedly gracious appeal. The listeners are left hanging as to how the story ends. Why is this so? Remember, the real audience for the story is the Pharisees, the elder brothers, Jesus is pleading with his enemies to respond to his message. Jesus is redefining the religious constructs that were in place then and that exist now. Sin is more than disobeying rules. Righteousness is more than keeping rules. Clearly, righteousness depends on entering into a relationship of love with the Father, Breaking off that relationship is sin. People tend to have two ways of approaching life. They're looking for happiness and fulfillment in one of these two ways, either by moral conformity, 
keeping the rules, like a Pharisee, like a cultural Adventist, or through self-discovery, finding myself, being myself, living a life that pleases me. And Jesus has used the two sons to illustrate what people can become following each of these paths. The message of Jesus' parable is that both of these approaches are wrong. His parable illustrates the radical alternative, that being that meaning in life is based on a rela the relationship I have with a creator God who infinitely loves me. The unthinkable conclusion of the story finds the openly rebellious son entering the father's feast, but the apparently good son steaming outside. The Pharisees must have gasped. This was a complete reversal of everything they had ever been taught. It gets more shocking. Why didn't the elder brother go in? Speaking for himself, he says, because I've never disobeyed you. It is not the rules he has broken that are a barrier to him. It is his pride in his moral record that keeps him out of the feast of salvation. Each son wants to be in a, in a position where they can tell the father what to do. Neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. What can we learn from this? I invite you to honestly examine your reasons for following Jesus. Looking at the two sons, we see that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him, either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. And there is a clear warning for us in this story ending, a warning for us to beware of the elder brother's spirit. What would that look like? Here are some symptoms of an elder brother heart. When your life doesn't go as you want, you aren't just sorrowful, but deeply angry and bitter. Number two, elder brothers believe that if they live a good life, they should get a good life, and God owes them a smooth road if they try very hard to live up to standards. This belief is too often on the lips of saints laid low with cancer, chronic illness, financial reversal, or the unexpected death of a loved one. Number three, elder brothers and sisters lack a personal assurance of the Father's love, because as long as you're trying to earn your salvation by controlling God through goodness, you will never be sure you have been good enough for Him. I pray that the Holy Spirit will transform my heart so that I live my life in response to God's love. I do not want to fall into the trap of living rightly because there is a heaven to gain and the devil's misrepresentation of hell to shun. Jesus speaks to the elder brothers in the audience of his day, the Pharisees, and to the elder brother audience of today. He wants us to know the danger of our condition. Jesus speaks to the younger brothers of this world who experience the condescension of the elder brothers 
and count it as one of their reasons for leaving in the first place. In this parable, Jesus says to us, would you please be open to the possibility that the gospel, real Christianity, is something very different from religion? The father's actions toward the younger son demonstrate this vital truth. It is not our repentance that causes God to love us. It is God's love for us that draws us into a relationship where we feel safe to express our remorse. So the father goes out to the angry, resentful elder brother, begging him to come into the feast. This picture shows that even the most religious and moral people need the initiating grace of God. While they are also lost, there is hope, even for the Pharisees who are plotting his death. He is pleading in love with his deadliest enemies to come enjoy the banquet celebrating the triumph of his redemptive love. So here it is. Are you ready to celebrate the reckless, outlandish, embarrassing, over-the-top, redeeming love of God? Not just in your life, but in the lives of all the younger brothers who are looking for home. Come in. Join the party. Be amazed at who you will become in a living relationship with our Creator. Let's bow our heads. Kind, most gracious Heavenly Father, may we generously minister out of your abundant love. Teach us to see where your Spirit is at work and strengthen us to join in. We praise you for your amazing, reckless love as you have emptied heaven to draw all of us home. Amen.